a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I would especially like to welcome those of you tuning in for the first time. And thank you, first of all, for having the courage <laughs> to tune in. This is an unknown. You, you don't know. Is this guy going to go off into the weeds? Very possibly I might. If I can be perfectly honest, there are times when I finish the show and, and, and I feel so much better that it's like, yeah, I kind of feel like I just got a lot off my chest. I vented my spleen and maybe that was more of a rant than, you know, this thoughtful discussion and dissemination of relevant information with a cup of tea in my pinky extended as we politely nod in agreement. Mm-hmm, yes, yes. But I'll tell you why I do what I do. I have uh, been very, very blessed in my life to um, to develop certain abilities and and talents that uh, have to do with uh, speaking and writing and um, and communicating. And now that gives me a lot of options. Well, you know, you could communicate a lot of different things. Why do I choose to communicate what I do? Because I believe that there are some things that really matter, not just now, but in the long run. Things that uh, things that will be important to us in the long halls of eternity. Now, some of that may be spiritual, but some of it is just, you know, the the basics of uh, understanding why do things matter like freedom of conscience, freedom to to think and speak freely. Why do private property rights matter? Why why does why do free market economics matter in terms of people being able to choose and innovate and and improve the world in ways that don't require, you know, some kind of incredible oversight and, you know, control by others? And I, I don't feel too shy in telling you this. We live in a time where there is so much conflict and so much madness that stems from people desperately trying to either manipulate or control people and sometimes that manipulation is for the purposes of control that uh, I feel like I have a duty to use whatever gifts God gave me to, to try to speak the truth. And I speak that truth in it, with, with this in mind. I don't care if people agree with me. I don't care if people call me names. I don't care if they think, well, he's just, you know, this, this radical out there, you know, talking crap on everything. People can think what they want. I know that there are individuals who are looking for timely, credible, truthful information by which they can better understand the world around them and not just understand it, not just, you know, look at it, yep, it sucks as bad as I thought it was going to, but rather to see the world as it is, but also to contemplate how it could be. In other words, what ways they could improve it and how they bridge that gap, well, that's going to differ from person to person. I guess this is a long way of saying the message that I share is not for everybody. And it's not because, you know, the people who aren't ready for it are dumb or somehow inferior or evil. They're not. We're all somewhere on that uh, spectrum of, uh, you know, how, how ready are you to hear certain truths? And if people aren't ready, they're not ready. Forcing them to acknowledge things they don't want to acknowledge tends to make people angry or upset or frightened. And that's not my goal. I guess at the end of the day, I want the people who tune into this program to come away with a greater certainty of who they are as well as what they stand for. 
as opposed to simply, yep, this is what I'm against and this is who I'm mad at. And, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of people out there who've made fantastic careers out of giving people, you know, the talking points of this is who we're against, this is what we're against, here's who you should be mad at today. And it changes, you know, from time to time. It, uh, there's we we have this little uh, two minutes hate to borrow a phrase from Orwell. And from time to time, it changes. You know, who are we focused on today? Who are we mad at? That's not a game I want to play. I want to encourage people to, to see what's going on, to, to become an unplayable piece on someone else's chessboard so that you're not being manipulated into things that really you don't want to be a part of. But above all, I do this because I know there are things that matter. And when I say things that matter, I'm talking about your freedom of conscience, your freedom to speak and think freely. Your freedom to own and control property and to create value for other people and to innovate and change the world for the better. And it's not a perfect situation. We got a lot going against us, but we cannot lose sight of those things that are precious and that, that require people in every generation to stand up and uh, and defend. And right now at this point, you know, the, the defense of those things is not, you know, with bayonets and torches and pitchforks. It's it's more in the arena of ideas. But wow, I don't think there's ever been a time. And I, I say this as someone who has paid really close attention and been learning diligently for the last 30 years. I've never seen greater effort to try to blind people to the truth or to distort the truth and to keep people, you know, off course, even by a few degrees that I'm seeing today. The fact checkers and the algorithms. And now it turns out, you know, thanks to the Twitter files, we learn, you know, even agencies of our federal government uh, outright paying and working with social media platforms, which is, you know, are very much a part of the public square now into uh, trying to control what people think, what they hear, what ideas they're allowed to consider. So that's why I do what I do, and I'd like to jump in today with an article here from Gary Barnett. This was published on lourockwell.com. The important things in life are too precious to lose. And I love what he says here right at the beginning of his article. He says, in the midst of all the uncertainty, the horror, the terror of the state, of personal heartbreak, and of the insanity that seems to be all-consuming during all of our lives today, beauty and joy is all around us. Now, Gary Barnett says it's hidden much of the time, but it can be found in an instant if one is to look closely enough and find it. And while so many have struggled to find the essence of life, only the few have reached that pinnacle. And he says, I think this is so terribly sad because regardless of strife and the hardships of life, underneath is heaven on earth. If this could only be known to more, maybe, just maybe, a harmony among many could find its way into the heart of our human existence. This is a goal worth seeking, and it's a goal, if achieved, that could bring about love and peace for the multitudes. Now, understand, he's saying this is not meant as a pronouncement of some societal utopia, because that can only exist within each of us, meaning that the more that find happiness, the better off we will all be. Now, he says, I'm not writing this specifically due to the Christmas holiday, because that affects everyone differently, if at all. But he also points out there is a magic that occurs this time of year. And he says, I've never understood why this magic that is so fleeting cannot live in our hearts all year long, every year. 
During the heinous and evil time of government's World War I, a Christmas truce was observed by those who were told to hate and kill each other. And a day of peace, laughter, and frolicking commenced only to end immediately after that short-lived voluntary unity. Why? Why do we hate each other when taught or told to do so? Why not love each other instead, not in the sense of fake or fraudulent hypocrisy or due to some scheme, but in the sense of joy among men? Isn't that a better way forward? By the way, we're going to be spending a little more time talking about that uh, Christmas truce in 1914 a little bit later on in the show. Gary Barnett says, Over time, we live and observe so many different life changes, but seem to never figure out how to only seek and keep the best parts of our lives. Instead, at least as it appears, the worst of mankind wins the day, and this should be unacceptable. We have ourselves, our thoughts, our dreams, our love of life, so how can anything against times like these interrupt and destroy our lives in favor of hatred? We have families, the most precious of gifts. We have children, the most innocent among us who seem in most cases to find unconditional cooperation among themselves. And when strife does occur, they tend to forget quickly and go back to play. Why is it that we as adults never seem to grasp the nature of our own young children and learn to play together as opposed to war against each other? After all, he asks, are we not, every one of us, human? We do have much in common regardless of what's presented by those evil among us who desire to create false fear, division, and separation in order to gain power and control over us. So he calls us to think about the unbelievable wonder of family, friends, neighbors, and all others everywhere. Think about the beauty of nature and life of all kinds that live and exist on this magnificent earth. Think about the joy of experiencing every moment as precious instead of concentrating only on the dark side of life. Be astonished by the sheer majesty of all that we encounter and all the adventure that's gone missing from our lives that could be reawakened. Gary Barnett says, Take this time to reflect on the good and ways to keep it within your heart and soul. There's plenty of time to understand the evil in life, but he says concentrating only on that evil will consume even the most optimistic among us and poison the mind. So he says, instead, spend time with family. Go fishing, go hiking, watch the splendor of life everywhere, eat wonderful foods from around the world and explore other cultures. Study and learn things, or learn about things rather, that are unknown to you. And above all, always seek to improve only self, for as you improve yourself, others will follow your path because you have found the elusive peace. That's some really solid advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com and also MonticelloCollege.org. And since I started out on kind of a positive note, I'm gonna. I'm warning you. I will be uh, getting into some of the uh, some of the less positive news stories uh, in the the following segments. But I want to continue on with uh, with the idea that you know you can find peace even when there is very little peace to be found. And I want to share with you this article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education: the story of the Christmas truce of 1914 and its eternal message. 
Now, maybe you've heard this before, but it's this is a story that's worth recounting, if only because it shows that even in the worst possible situation, peace can be found. And in fact, uh, you know, it's it's I know some people say, well, peace is an artificial and fleeting thing that, you know, it's a pipe dream. No, peace is actually our uh, that's that's our uh, normal condition. All the conflict, that's what's artificial. But we buy into the idea that, no, 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 that's totally normal because there are people who profit from keeping us divided and conflicted with others. John Miltimore says war had already been waging in Europe for months when Pope Benedict issued a plea from Rome on December 7th, 1914 to the leaders of Europe. Declare a Christmas truce. Benedict saw how badly peace was needed, even if it was only for a day. In fact, the Battle of Ypres alone, fought from October 19th to November 22nd, had resulted in 200,000 casualties, mostly German and French soldiers, but also thousands of English and Belgians. The first Battle of the Marne was even worse. In light of this carnage, the Pope asked that the guns may fall silent at least upon the night the angels sang. Now, the European leaders ignored his plea. But then something miraculous happened on the eve of Christmas. From no man's land, the area between the trench works of Allied and Central forces, German troops, in a spontaneous act, put down their weapons and invited English soldiers to celebrate Christmas with them. It's remembered today as the Christmas truth. The British cartoonist Bruce Bairnsfather Barnes, was one of many who chronicled the event. A machine gunner in the 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, Barnesfather was Barnesfather rather was uh, shivering in the muck of a three-foot trench on a cold night, munching on stale biscuits and chain smoking, when he heard a noise about 10 p.m. He says, "I listened across the field, among the dark shadows beyond. I could hear the murmur of voices." He turned to a fellow soldier in his trench and said, "Do you hear the Germans kicking up that racket over there?" "Yes," came the reply. "They've been at it some time." The Germans were singing carols as it was Christmas Eve. In the darkness, some of the British soldiers began to sing back. Suddenly, Baron's father recalled, We heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen. Listen. The shout came again. The voice was from an enemy soldier, speaking in English with a strong German accent. He was saying, Come over here. After some talk, back and forth, British troops laid down their weapons, climbed out of their trenches, crossed the barbed wire, and joined the Germans. They traded handshakes and songs, they chewed tobacco and drank wine, and laughed together, these men who earlier that day had been doing their best to kill each other. Some accounts describe German and British soldiers playing football or soccer on makeshift fields. Others mention British soldiers setting up barber shops and offering haircuts in exchange for cigarettes. The one thing all of the accounts have in common is a general feeling of merriment among the soldiers. There was not an atom of hate on either side, Baron's father recalled. Afterwards, not everyone was pleased with the gaiety. Some military leaders reportedly seethed over the Christmas truce, but Baron's father suggests the soldiers themselves cherished the moment which they sorely needed, saying for those who participated, it was surely a welcome break from the hell they had been enduring. When the war had begun just six months earlier, most soldiers figured it would be over quickly and they'd be home with their families in time for the holidays. Not only would the war drag on for four more years, but it would prove to be the costliest, con- or the bloodiest conflict, rather, ever up to that time. Now, John Miltimore says, I've always found the Christmas truce moving and also telling. While the leaders of Europe may have loathed one another, the German and English people clearly did not, at least not once they met one another. 
On that Christmas night, the nationalism that divided German and British soldiers evaporated when they met face-to-face, traded, laughed, drank, and discovered their common humanity. John Miltimore says, I recently recently read Stille Nacht, Silent Night, the story of the Christmas truce, a new children's book written by Rory McGarf, McGrath rather, uh, to my youngest son. And he says he had many questions, but mostly he wanted to know why the soldiers were fighting in the place were fighting in the first place. And he says, I suspect many soldiers, Belgians and Germans, French, Englishmen and beyond, themselves wondered this very same thing many times during the war. And John Miltimore says, I didn't have a good answer for him. But I thought on the matter some since, and I think the Christmas truce holds a clue about why we fight. People who for weeks and months had been shooting and bombing one another found themselves laughing and singing and trading, and they did so because they defied their orders. The sad truth is nation-states, which throughout history have done a magnificent job of convincing humans that people they never met are their enemy, often are not particularly interested in peace. War is the health of the state, the radical writer Randolph Bourne famously noted. The truth is, waging war is what government does best, and the people who wage them and win are the ones lauded in the history books. The losers, of course, are not, which makes winning a war that has begun all the more important. It's also important to point out that the people who declare war rarely see their own blood spilled during them. Now, John Miltimore says, look, I don't wish to oversimplify something as serious and terrible as war, but I do wish to demonstrate there is another way. The Christmas truce shows us that peace is achieved by rejecting statism and nationalism and collectivism in all forms. It is won by embracing our common humanity and the things that, can, the things that bring us together. He says, even bitter enemies can become friends when we reject violence and see people as they truly are as individuals, especially on Christmas, a holiday that celebrates the birth of not a conqueror, but of a lamb. The British and German troops who on Christmas Eve enjoyed one night of joy amid the carnage of 1914 could attest to that. And he actually keeps in mind, he actually links to at least three other different articles that you can read about this Christmas truce. There's also a movie, and I have I have not had a chance to see the the movie. I believe it's called Still at Nacht, but uh, it is. Uh, this story has stirred my heart for many many years, and I think if only for this reason. If people in the absolute worst of conditions, like literally in trenches, separated from their enemy by you know a few yards of mud and barbed wire, if they could find peace even if it was just for a brief matter of hours, we ought to be able to do that. I mean, I, I'm just spitballing here, but I think we're probably, most of us, in less trying conditions than those soldiers found themselves in on Christmas Eve 1914. So why do we hold on to grudges? Why do we hold on to conflict? In fact, why do we sometimes crave it? I've been there, by the way. I know what it's like to, oh, yeah, love a good knockdown, drag out argument. And, you know, I've, I have wasted time arguing with strangers on the Internet as if it actually mattered, as if it was actually going to change the world. Some people kind of thirst for that, uh, you know, that clash of battle. Maybe it's a chance to prove yourself or maybe it's just the chance to feel strong. But at some point. We've got to ask ourselves, what good am I doing? If I'm someone who is either promoting conflict or just simply running to the sound of somebody else's conflict or someone else's invitation to conflict, 
How is that in any way improving the world around me? And I think 99% of the time, you know, unless it's, you know, someone or something you love that's being actively attacked and you're, you're acting in defense of them, we're going to find that we'd be better off not to answer that call to conflict. Now, that doesn't mean we just turn a blind eye to, you know, things that are, are destructive or that are, are otherwise trying to force themselves upon us. But it means that we need to have something other than the desire to dominate motivating our actions and motivating, you know, what we hold most dear in our lives. For some people, that's going to sound like, what are you saying? We should be doing more navel gazing? By the way, that's usually spoken by people who kind of thrive on conflict. I'm just saying we ought to be more certain of who we are and what we stand for than what we're against. That's all. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, I know the first couple of segments of this show were probably quite reasonable. And I'm going to talk about a few things that uh, have a tendency to stir the blood pressure, maybe get people just a little bit uh, hot under the collar. Please understand my goal here is not to make you mad. It's not to uh, not to bring fear into your life, but... As, as I read some of the headlines, and particularly as, as I'm seeing some of the things that are being revealed by the Twitter files that are, are now being released, my sense of injustice is definitely stirred. And, and it's hard not to feel contemptuous towards not only the politicians, but also towards, uh, you know, many of the, uh, many of the people on the... Many of the people on the political left who have have sought to control and dominate and 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 to and the media especially to try to convince people, oh, you know, if you question anything about to the 2020 election, you are some kind of evil denier. And yet uh, there there are so many corruption deniers, and we're finding out that uh, no, those those concerns were actually very well founded. In fact, there's been a lot of indication. It's not just not just the election stuff. The vaccines. Oh, my goodness. Have you seen some of the numbers that are starting to come out now? Saw a chart out of Germany yesterday showing the the number of unexplained deaths and breaking them down. I think there were three different categories. You know, some people uh, who who died within 24 hours of getting their, their vaccine or getting their boosters. And it's very clear that the concerns that many people had about uh, using these uh thus far unproven mRNA vaccines, these were not misplaced fears. This wasn't just, you know, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories, as we were told they were. And it's interesting how our media is so quiet about this. Oh, well, there's really nothing to say here. Well, you know, they're still promoting, you know, go get your vaccine, go get boosted. But the numbers are showing. It's, it's the, I've seen the graph that I saw yesterday. Uh, my friend Ruben sent this to me. This was off of Twitter. It's pretty hard to deny. Something is causing a very noticeable, unexplained uptick in sudden deaths. And it corresponds with exactly when the vaccines were rolled out. Now, I'm not inviting you to be fearful and I'm, I'm not inviting you to be angry, but I'm saying there were, there were voices that were warning about this all the time. Maybe, uh, maybe it's time to, to see if, if what they were saying was correct. 
and how sad that so many people have had to suffer and are currently suffering and losing loved ones as a result of this. There's another aspect too, and this this one hits home for me because, you know, I, I look at how many different shows on TV. I think CBS has three separate shows all about the FBI, and it's you know it's always attractive people with the uh, you know body armor and and guns in their hands running around saving the world. Oh my gosh, they are so lauded as heroes, and yet uh, I look at the FBI. And I'm feeling something toward them that I think perhaps uh, the, the unfortunate residents of the Soviet Union must have felt toward the KGB. When you saw KGB personnel running around, I wonder if they got warm fuzzies or if they'd had television shows, did they celebrate, oh, look at this, KGB, Los Angeles, KGB, whatever. I don't know. But it's very clear to me the FBI does not appear to be on the side of the American people. And media worship of the FBI might be the norm, but I think that's that's just to try to keep people in line and keep them attached to a narrative that, that blinds them to how thoroughly corrupted this organization has become. Now, Ron Paul says the Twitter files make it clear, we must abolish the FBI. He says, as we learn more and more from the Twitter files, it's becoming all too clear, or all too obvious rather, that federal agencies such as the FBI view the First Amendment of our Constitution as an annoyance and an impediment. In Friday's release from the pre-Musk era, journalist Matt Taibbi makes an astute observation. Twitter was essentially an FBI subsidiary. The FBI, as we now know, was obsessed with Twitter. We learned that agents sent Twitter trust and safety chief Yoel Roth some 150 emails between 2020 and 2022. And those emails regularly featured demands from U.S. government officials for the private social media company to censor comments and ban commenters they did not like. The Foreign Influence Task Force, a U.S. government entity that included the FBI, as well as other U.S. intelligence agencies, expressly forbidden from domestic activities, numbered 80 agents engaged regularly in telling Twitter which tweets to censor and which accounts to ban. The Department of Homeland Security brought in, an outside, brought in outside government contractors and government-funded non-governmental organizations to separately pressure Twitter to suppress speech the U.S. government did not like. U.S. federal government agencies literally handed Twitter lists of Americans it wanted to see silenced, and Twitter complied. Now, he says, let that sink in. This should be a massive scandal, and it likely would have been had it occurred under a Trump administration. Indeed, Congress would be gearing up for impeachment 3.0 if Trump-allied officials had engaged in such egregious behavior. But since these U.S. government employees were, by and large, acting to to suppress pro-Trump sentiment... All we hear are crickets. And what's interesting about these Twitter revelations is how obsessed the FBI and its government partners were with satire and humor. Even minor Twitter accounts with small numbers of followers were constantly flagged by the feds for censorship and deletion. But knowledge of history helps us understand this obsession. In Soviet times, the population was always engaged in joking about the ineptitude, corruption, and idiocy of the political class. Underground publications known as Samizdat were rich with satire, humor, and ridicule. And his point is this, tyrants hate humor and cannot withstand satire. That's clearly why the FBI and CIA was determined to see a heavy hand raised against any American poking fun at the deep state. Now, there is good news in all this, however. Ron Paul says, as constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley wrote over the weekend, 
A new Harvard Caps-Harris poll found that even though the mainstream media has ignored the Twitter files, Americans have not. Nearly two-thirds of respondents believe that Twitter was involved in politically motivated censorship in advance of the 2020 election. Some 70% of those polled believe Congress must take action against this corporate state censorship. As Professor Turley points out, although the First Amendment only applies to the U.S. government, it does apply to agents or surrogates of the government. Twitter now admits that such a relationship existed between its former officials and the government. Dang. So Ron Paul says, now we have proof the FBI, along with U.S. intelligence agencies and the Department of Homeland Security, have been acting through private social media companies to manipulate what Americans are allowed to say when they communicate with each other. And he asked, is there anything more un-American than that? He says, personally, I find it sickening. We do not need the FBI and CIA and other federal agencies viewing us as the enemy and attacking our Constitution. And so he says, end the Fed and end the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I know there are some people who probably like to watch the FBI shows. Oh, I love criminal minds. I love to watch this. But I think this is sound advice. And and I'm hoping, you know, maybe in vain that when uh, the Republicans take control of the House, that perhaps we'll see a bit of a shift in in how those agencies are, are held accountable. But if nothing else, I'm encouraging you don't fall prey to the idea that, well, they're just here to protect us and they're here to help us. Because the only thing that they're protecting right now is the power of the political class. And the people that they're looking at most closely as potential enemies to that uh, political class are people like you and me. People who don't have aspirations to go out and take over the world or overthrow governments, but simply want to be left alone to live our lives and to pursue happiness on our own terms without violating anybody else's rights. That's offending to their controlling nature. But I guess uh, there's really no line to straddle here, or at least that line's becoming pretty darn clear. It's not exactly a blurry, you know, line in the sand anymore. We've got a pretty clear choice before us. As for me personally, my advice is not, you know, well, we need to fight harder and vote smarter and so forth. I'm not saying that you shouldn't put effort into being involved in your governance, but I think our efforts are best spent building whatever it is that will come next. Rather than go out and engage in open conflict, I think our best bet is to simply turn our backs on and withdraw our consent from those people who have abused power, those people who have abused us, and let them collapse. Their corruption and and rot is such that they can't continue on indefinitely the way that they're going. And they can't control people like you and me without our consent. Oh, they can threaten, and they'll make examples of a few. I mean, it's the IRS is notorious for doing this around tax time. Well, we caught a tax cheat, and they're going to hold it up and make it a big, you know, uh, a big deal and make it public. See, this is what happens to people who defy us. But if enough people find the courage to simply say, no, I won't play that game. Eventually, there just aren't enough of them to impose their will on the rest of us. Something to think about. I hope it gives you hope. It gives me hope. And so I work every single day to try to awaken those lions among us who can find the courage to withdraw their consent 
and help build whatever comes next. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I would like to invite you, if you haven't already, please feel free to subscribe to my show notes. All you have to do is go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Click on the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, there's a big subscribe button. It's going to ask you to share your email address. When you do this, I want you to understand I will not share or give or sell that email address to anybody. That's, uh, that's between you and me, and I don't charge anything. I will just simply pass along those show notes every day that I do the show. Why would you want them? Well, because if you want to do a little further research on your own, there, there are great links, and often within those stories, numerous links that can take you further into a given topic if it's something that you find of interest. Now, I want to shift for a moment and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in our nation's capital. And a lot, of the, a lot of the drama seems to make more sense when you think of it as a puppet show wrapped in a passion play, a political passion play. And Sasha Stone on her Substack, actually just did a marvelous job of calling out the shameful January 6th show trial as well as the lapdog press. I know that uh, this last few days, you know, of course, the, the January 6th committee recommended to the Department of Justice, we think you should bring criminal charges against uh, former President Trump. And, and I expect they're probably going to go for an on-camera arrest of Trump that want to perp walk him. They, they really need to do whatever they can to prevent him from being able to run again in 2024. And of course, they also want to humiliate, uh, you know, any of his followers or any of his supporters in the process, as well as likely criminalize support for him. But it's all put on. And, and you know, the, the self-congratulatory why this January 6th committee was so you know, so objective and so courageous in going after the truth. No, they weren't. It was a bunch of Democrats with two turncoat Republicans handpicked because they could be counted on to rubber stamp whatever the Democratic majority was, say, majority was saying, who uh, didn't call witnesses or wouldn't allow any kind of uh, cross-examination. They had a preordained conclusion they were going to come to. This was always going to be their conclusion, and yet we're supposed to believe why they've done us this great service. They are all heroes. Sasha Stone starts with a, a quote from George Orwell from 1984. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. Sasha Stone says, Jamie Raskin wants to tell you a story. It's one that's tumbled around in his brain for years now. It's also one he hopes to make his name on. Jamie Raskin, hero at long last. All he had to do was stand before the American people and pretend that President Trump planned an insurrection, an overthrow of the United States government. How hard could that be? He'd already tried to impeach him twice, along with Democrats and a handful of never-Trumpers. All of this worked so beautifully in the midterms to scare voters away from MAGA. Let's keep it going, they think. Sasha Stone says it's a sad story. It paints a picture of an insulated, isolated ruling class elite so hell-bent on power, they're willing to sell out the American people to get it and keep it. The only reason they're getting away with this Dr. Strange-Love-esque absurd circus is that they have a willing, compliant, obedient puppet press 
that will go along with Raskin's fantasy and every other huckster conman who wants to sell it. Believe us, they say, because we're important. We care about the marginalized groups. We care about democracy. We care about justice. We care about the truth. How sad to see the media with their blue check army on Twitter, the thought robots for the state, parroting the talking points all to win this game of catch Trump if you can. Look there, the puppet media dismissing the Twitter files as a nothing burger. Look there, MSNBC praising Liz Cheney and Jamie Raskin for a job well done. They got him. Now, Sasha Stone says the real story, of course, is the Twitter files, which expose intense FBI involvement, payments, follow the money, and manipulation to fool the media, Twitter, and ultimately the American people that only one side of the story was true. Of course, the media have no choice to call it a nothing burger. What are they going to do? Real journalism? Not a chance. When you step back and look at the big picture, you'll see the real story. Let's start with the mistake of Donald Trump winning in 2016. A mistake... The government, the FBI especially, had to rectify to, to please Queen Hillary and King Obama. A mistake that let in the people they had demonized as racist white supremacists. A mistake that now launched the biggest protests in American history up to and including a genuine revolution in the summer of 2020. Right away, the FBI set about finding something on Trump. Congress helped. The media took a different front. Everything he did or said was mocked. He was discredited at every turn. Heading into the election, what ho, it's the FBI again, this time seducing and potentially entrapping the very kind of people Trump attracted. Disaffected, marginalized white men who had no jobs, no future, and no hope. Let's help them find a target, they probably thought. One journalist got the story and saw exactly that. These were not criminal masterminds. They were sad, lonely, depressed men, easily exploited. They needed to find extremists, you see. They needed to make their melodrama seem real enough to win in 2020. Gretchen Whitmer did her part, playing the damsel in distress. The public shrank back in horror. What have we done? But that wouldn't be enough. They needed something bigger. Much, much bigger. That was all done in text messages and behind closed doors. They needed video. They needed a powerful piece of propaganda to prove everything they were saying was true. They needed an insurrection. Trump's predictable objections to the 2020 election, which was the first election I've ever seen that was rigged from the top down, gave them the opportunity. Everyone in Trump circles knew there was going to be a lit protest in D.C. on January 6th. But to them, that meant dancing around to the village people, not hanging Mike Pence. But someone, somewhere, was starting a fire. It would turn into a full-blown riot that could not be controlled. The FBI knew. The mayor knew. Plenty of people knew it was coming. Yet they left the Capitol Police vulnerable. You know the rest of the story. Sasha Stone says, while reading the latest Spectator piece on the conclusions by the January 6th committee... I was struck by the first paragraph, quote, The Capitol riots on January 6th deserved a serious public investigation because the events were so important. The rioters who entered the Capitol building tried to use violence and intimidation to prevent the peaceful transfer of power by normal constitutional procedures. That's as serious as it gets in our democracy, end quote. Now, Sasha says never in any of this is a conversation about why they were there in the first place, the 2020 election that our government and their puppet press want to pretend that this was a perfectly ordinary election is frustrating enough that millions of people in this country still believe it was an unfair, unbalanced, bought-and-paid-for election. They had every right to protest. Silly them, they thought our government actually listened to protests. They are the voice of the un- voices of the unheard, not these protesters. 
They'd been systematically dehumanized for six years. They just had to wear a red hat or show up with a Trump flag to be called an extremist. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley had agreed to debate the regulations in some states. That was happening. The riot simply shut it down and handed absolute power to the Democrats, who then proceeded to create the kind of political theater normally reserved for dictators like Putin. A six-year-long dehumanization campaign drove the assumption Trump supporters are violent by nature, a psyop to shut down a working-class populist movement. The media simply did as they were told. They sell the lie that they're all white, that they're racists, that they're white supremacists, QAnon conspiracy theorists. She says, most people I know cling to this delusion because otherwise, what does that make them? It makes them monsters. There's just one problem. It isn't true. Trump supporters tend to be outsiders who lack representation culturally or politically. Some of them just hate the corrupt government establishment. Some of them are frustrated that our country has become so punitive, so censorious, so politically correct. Trump supporters pride themselves on being nonviolent. Even Alex Jones, speaking in D.C. that day on January 6th, was preaching peaceful protesting. No one, not Trump nor his supporters, was planning on violence. If the embarrassing, soul-crushing, one-sided show trial foisted upon Americans had been anything like a real investigation, that part of the story would have been told. The government tosses the ball gently down the center plate, the media hits it out of the park, and everyone pretends they played a fair game, but they didn't. They're crooks and liars. The game is rigged against many people in this country. Trump supporters, the black and brown people the left supposedly cares about, those who spend their days driving trucks or sitting behind counters or delivering mail. Drive through North Hollywood if you want to see how those black and brown people Democrats use to justify everything they do actually live. They're forgotten too. Abandoned. Invisible. Sasha Jones says, Sasha Stone rather says, I'm staying at a motel in Fruta, Colorado at a Motel 6. It's freezing cold. The woman working the front desk lives in this town and works this job, which can't pay much. What does she do every day? Does she watch the January 6th show trial and feel like justice was done because the bad man was stopped? And does that make her sleep better at night? Maybe. Sasha says, I'm a city girl at heart. I love the hum and energy of New York, New Orleans, Chicago, even Rome or Paris. People's collective energy can be easily recognized, especially when you watch someone die and watch that energy slip away. But out in the middle of the country, there's a different kind of energy. In fact, in Joel and Ethan Cohen's No Country for Old Men, one of her favorite films, they don't even use a musical score. Now, there's much more to this article, but I hope that you will check it out on your own. Go to my show notes, thebrianhideshow.com. And above all, pay attention and think for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.